All right, Frank, we got to do a commercial real quick. You ready? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, okay, okay. <clears throat> hey, Kelsey. We do a lot of work here at the Video Game History Foundation, traveling to meet old game developers, maintaining our library, and making lots of cool content. But how do we pay for all that? Well, Frank, we're a publicly funded charity. All of the work we do here is made possible through generous donations from video game fans all around the world. Hey, that sounds just like our listeners. From Giving Tuesday, November 30th through the end of the year, we'll be fundraising to help make the work we do possible. Our generous sponsors are even matching donations dollar for dollar, so your impact is doubled. So head on over to GameHistory.org slash donate and give what you can. Every dollar helps. Let's save some video game history together. Okay, cut the crap. Back to the show. Welcome to episode number 61 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I am the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Disney's theme parks, you know, Disneyland, Disney World, those places, they're in their way of virtual reality in and of themselves. So it isn't surprising to know that there have been multiple attempts now to sort of virtualize the park itself by way of MMOs and odd game for the original NES. And oh, yeah, that one Connect game, too. But not all of these attempts made it to the market. Uh, Jacob Solace from the website Pop History is here to tell us about an ambitious attempt at a virtual Magic Kingdom CD-ROM that, in a lot of ways, is also the story of Hollywood's odd uh, attempts in the 90s to try to get into the video game market in a pretty major way. Jacob, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Um, so we're talking today about a pretty specific era of Disney as a software house, but uh, this is by no means the beginning, right? Right. So basically, Disney had sort of had their own little operation sort of off to the side for throughout the late 80s, turning into the 90s. It was called Walt Disney Computer Software, normally shortened to Disney Software. Essentially, what it was was just a little a little office in uh, Burbank, I think, that um, basically they had these licenses that they would hand out to companies every so often. In the past, they would normally do it through the company itself. But in the 80s, they were sort of starting to get into the idea of working directly with companies just sort of on a higher level, as it were. Because at the same time, of course, the console war was happening and Sega and Nintendo were sort of putting their pieces into place. And a lot of the deals that they made with Sega and Capcom were sort of um, uh, being put up to the forefront. And that that of course led to all the games that people sort of tend to think of in Disney in the the Ducktales, the Lion King, yeah, basically, yeah, the Aladdin games, all the stuff like Aladdin in particular that got a lot of attention because Jeffrey Katzenberg at the time was really promoting the idea of having official Disney feature artists working on these titles, sort mm-hmm. of uh, applying their um, their time and effort and skills to those projects. They couldn't sustain it for very long, of course. So eventually all of that animation stuff got pushed over to third party animation houses that they sort of contracted in, in terms of what happened with Disney interactive, those, those, those animation houses included, um, 
uh, creative capers who did uh, nightmare Ned and did some work on a lot, a lot of the edutainment stuff. And they also had um, Karen Johnson productions who will factor into the story of this particular story of VMK. They were uh, Karen Johnson was based in uh, Racine, Wisconsin. And in fact, one of the uh, people who worked on the game itself, uh, animation director, Tim Decker was actually from Racine. So he sort of knew the area knew the people and sort of was able to, um, be sort of the light liaison between those two once it started getting into that production side of things. My my impression is that um, Aladdin really changed things at Disney in terms of their perception of games. I mean, you know, prior to this, uh, Kelsey, I think you mentioned things like DuckTales, right? Like that was a partnership with Capcom, but there was even, you know, the, there was the like Capcom and Sega were also mentioned. You, you, you had you had the 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 Sega Genesis sort of first party Sega games and stuff like that. But Aladdin uh, sold millions, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, was was a really big critical success uh, sort of was this fusion between um, games and Disney animation, because the, the, the animation itself, uh, as you alluded to, Jacob, was done in house at Disney animation. And, and I feel like, you know, my perception anyway, as an outsider is that 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 just kind of gave them a taste of like, hey, there's this market maybe we should be taking more seriously rather than, you know, my my perception is that it's almost more of like, here's just a product we can license Disney stuff to as opposed right. to this entire giant entertainment medium that is going to persist for decades and people are going to remember fondly and all of that. Right. And Aladdin really was sort of early on in the, the phase of Hollywood sort of getting into games in the grand scheme of things. Um, essentially, like Aladdin sort of kicked off um, uh, sort of the creative side of that. But of course, you also had the business side of things where like um, my, my original hypothesis for uh, submitting to the writing fund was that essentially that um, a lot of this, a lot of what happened in Hollywood sort of could be sort of blocked into a giant era of sorts that had a, sort of its ups and downs throughout the early nineties up until like the uh, transition into the um, transition into the PS3 generation. And, a lot of what I ended up doing really focused on the first half of that because essentially like that thesis eventually <laughs> that th- that thesis eventually proved right. But it wasn't, it wasn't a really a new thing though. Like people around that time would have, would have known about the term Silliwood. That was sort of a thing that was thrown around. There was a lot of um, buzz, buzz around uh, multimedia term. and all that. Silicon Valley and it's, it's, Hollywood. Oh, Silicon Valley. Silicon Hollywood. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, the thing was, it was all different buzzwords coming down from different places. Like at this, like on the political side of things, there was uh, mayor Richard Re- uh, Reardon from LA who put a, um, who put a committee together to come up with the name digital coast to promote LA with that. And on the, Business side, of course, you had Trip Hopkins, who was promoting the 3DO with that sort of thing in mind, and also working with uh, Skip Paul, who, uh, who at the same time at CES in uh, 93, 94, was, pr- was promoting uh, Universal Interactive Studios, which at the time was basically just working on um, Jurassic Park Interactive with the Studio 3DO, their little development team, and also was in the um, 
bidding process with Naughty Dog for Way of the Warrior. So that was sort of the genesis of Hollywood's sort of all at once thrust involvement. Everything sort of happened around like 1994 when everyone's when all these studios basically just started announcing these new divisions, which like Disney already had their own division of sorts, but they, what they ended up doing was sort of intermingling it with other departments that they had, including like the Disney television. Um, The first, one of the first big artists who came in was uh, Mike Kukar who interviewed with me and he came in when it was still in the Disney channel building in Glendale. It was sort of like a little office in there. And he was one of the few, he was an artist who came in from Cal state Fullerton and he worked with another artist, John Fiorito, who was from art center. And the two of them essentially brought in all these people from their respective colleges to sort of build up the art department before Disney interactive was even really a thing. And once they started organizing that they sort of moved into their own building which i believe was the one that was just vacated from the disney feature animation people when they had the new building put in uh the the official animation building so the idea here is just take this more seriously get like a real internal team together to be only working on electronic entertainment is that effectively effectively the thing is is that they didn't really have a whole lot of people in-house that they could rely on so eventually they had to start bringing in people from outside right so eventually when they i'm skipping ahead a little but once they started really getting uh what became uh, vmk into gear they had to get this um set of game people who had sort of been in the industry. And the main person who came in was Roger Holdberg. He was at Knowledge Adventure and had some experience with um, working in the film industry with Steven Spielberg. And at the time was sort of in a transition period. He Knowledge Adventure had just been bought out by what became Sendent, which was a story, which is, which is a massive story for another time, which I have written down. But uh, Knowledge Adventure was sort of being pushed into DreamWorks Interactive because Spielberg was one of the main investors of um, Knowledge Adventure. And so he was sort of working both with DreamWorks to finish the two games that they had, which was um, uh, Pyramid and Steven Spielberg's uh, director's chair, and then also doing meetings with Disney Interactive when he got recruited there. Um, so that was sort of how the sort of attitude was with bringing in outside people, they would have these um, big recruiting pushes. They had um, the head of creative development, Kendall Lockhart. Everyone who I talked to said that Kendall was like the main uh, driving force in bringing in handpicking artists that they would like recruit in and sort of like file in into all the different divisions that they had, the edutainment, the consoles, and eventually what became a, a different unit that was working on VMK for PC. So prior to sort of building this new division within Walt Disney, um, you know, had they done any game development in house? I I mean, I happen to know from just my own contacts over the years that there was some game design in house, um, but mostly working with external partners. But was this the first time that, Disney as a company tried to actually make video games as far as video games versus like 
edutainment and consumer software, this was really the first. They had a few different little occasionally bring people in third parties and uh, individual employees to do like edutainment software for like the Apple II and different mm. things like that. But this was the first time when, you know, since multimedia was becoming a thing, they really wanted to have people who um, sort sort of knew th- sort of knew the direction that the industry would be in, even though the way it turned out, things would change really rapidly, of course. Actually, the, I mean, you mentioned multimedia, which was, you know, sort of the next question on my mind is, is that, is that what's spawning all of these Hollywood studios to, to try to get into software that this idea that, that there's a multimedia revolution happening now that we have CD-ROM and it just feels like we have infinite space and we can play videos on our computers now. That's the other thing that multimedia is was really hard to define. Like effectively, like uh, Michael John, when I was interviewing for uh, Universal Interactive, he essentially he essentially called it the blockchain of its day in terms of like people would throw the term around and be like not really understanding what the scope of it was like it's the buzzword yeah nowadays we can think of multimedia as like individual sort of different elements we can look back and see like oh this was full motion video this was um like video cds and video games just like 3d video games or uh 3d cutscenes within video games uh digital software it the internet the internet was a big thing as well but of course it took a little while and um even though D- Disney at the time, like um, they, they they were one of the first companies, according to Tom Schillinger, one of the artists, to actually use email. He eventually became a freelance three D conceptual artist, and he would oh he would be coming into all these clients, and they would not understand that like how like like how do you how do you know how to um, do all that? And he's like Disney because they were sticklers about. Um, technology they sort of they sort of understood technology but they sort but um at the same time like no nobody at the time really um was all that forthright and publicly about um like the limits of it and that's where the story sort of turns later on because um vmk it took three years and within that three years everything started to change. Like the technology that they were using of pre-rendered 3d was already old within the first two. Right. Yeah, definitely a period of a lot of technological, uh, shifting. So, um, I mean, to get to, uh, VMK, which is virtual magic kingdom. Um, let's, I mean, how do they even start this project? I guess to back up even further than that, what is a Disney Imagineer and how do how does Disney Imagineering get involved in video games? So one of the things I really had to circle around with in my storytelling is the fact that like a lot of there's a lot of focus already on like overarching Disney history. There's already a lot of like um talk about like everything that's been going on with theme parks and the people around and all that but really when i see when i see these sort of applied to what happened with disney in the 90s it sort of brings forth the idea that effectively the imagineers at the time were sort of um 
in a transition. They had people who had been with Disney when like Disneyland and Disney World were starting to come into play. Like they had Epcot and the Disney MGM Studios and all that. But they would constantly be like, um, be bringing new people in and sort of the direction of the company, the direction of the whole company was, I'm, I'm thinking back to a, a quote from uh, back in, back in the eighties when Michael Eisner and um, Wells and, and uh, Katzenberg and all them, they were sort of confronting the idea of um, the tradition that had been continued by the executives who had been there before them, which was the idea of what would Walt do, you know? So like what the, the, the first people who had sort of inherited the Disney company at the time were sort of um, they, they would admit that they had sort of lost the way with the company at, at least in the film side of things, but the Imagineers, they understood better than the rest of the company. I think that really the idea of continuing the company after Waltz really stemmed from the idea that when you continue with, like eventually things will get old within the park. Things will, things will get old and you'd have to like replace it and all that. And like when people talk about Waltz, they say that Walt understood that. Yeah, and what is that quote? It's like Disney Disney World will never be done. Disneyland will like never that. be complete. Yeah. Yeah. That that that's one of the quotes that I sort of formed the article on, which is the idea that Disneyland itself, the park, um like all like all the theme parks, the idea of Disneyland is always changing. Like you can have the essence of the park in terms of like the individual lands like Fantasyland, Adventureland, all those different things, but when you get down to it, like there, 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 there are not very many sacred cows in the theme parks, basically. So the Imagineers, if they think there's something wrong with the, with a, if they think there's something wrong with an attraction or they think there's something they can do better or replace it, they'll just, they'll just go in and replace it. If they think they have a better idea, they will go in and try new things. You can't necessarily do that with a video game. Um, one of the sort of things that happened with VMK was the fact that they were essentially snapshotting a vision of the park from the nineties and it could work, but effectively it would be sort of limited by what there was at the time. If that makes sense. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, you know, this division as, as, as it is at this time of, of Disney and, and um, you know, I believe there are, kind of two distinct divisions even within uh uh the software division itself right like like what, what is the structure like well when disney interactive started they had two divisions they had edutainment and they had entertainment so they would have um mike Kukar would be on the ed- edutainment side he did like the activity centers and the animated storybooks those were big business in and of themselves because it was, they were really simple. They were easy to make. You know, you, you really just needed to have some basic animations, know the stories, get some little interactive bits in there, and all is good. But the entertainment side of things, um, I believe they put in two more divisions for like console games specifically, and uh, for um, 
interactive software, but the edutain so the entertainment side of things was really struggling. They had a cup they had a bunch of projects that were pitched but not necessarily produced, but at the same time they were also putting millions of dollars in them. One of the people who I've later interviewed, uh, Gregor Joachim, he was in, he was responsible for the pitch boards. So he would be pitching to Michael Eisner and Michael Lovitz for these games. And two of the games that he talked about being pitched to them were both based on Hollywood Pictures movies, like really mature movie stuff. So there was Crimson Tide, the um, I, I forget who stars in it. Yeah, I do too. Wait, who was? I'm, 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 I'm looking it up. <laughs> I, I should have, I should have had it in my notes. Crimson Tide. It did not go very far in the pitching. That was one that just sort of like right. Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington. That's right. Yes, yeah. Gene Gene Hackman. It, yeah. The other one, of course, was uh, The Rock, starring uh, Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. That Wait, one so, got a on. little I, further. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause you here. A Crimson okay. Tide video game. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've seen this film. Mm-hmm. It's it's just <laughs> it's mostly Hackman just yelling at Washington. <laughs> like that, that is my memory of that yeah. movie. <laughs> but at the same time, like what else is there? Like Hollywood Pictures was yeah. sort of like, you, you know, it was growing like. But at the same time, like there there was sort of like an identity crisis within Disney because like they, they didn't really have a separate adult game, like a mature games brand at that point these divisions would eventually have their own uh, mature game divisions. But in the nineties, they didn't really have that. So a lot of what they tried to do was sort of stop gapped by just trying to find an audience for them. So Crimson Tide didn't really have that. And they had another game, the rock with the uh, movie starring Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage that got a little further. They did spend 3 million on just development for it. Effectively, what they wanted to do was sort of a on rails first person shooter, sort of in a House of the Dead vein, but it would be in, as I was told, they would have like Alcatraz and the Hollywood sets sort of navigated through by a Steadicam, and that would be a thing. And that that would sort of create the backdrop for actual like, you know, on rails gameplay. And that was the first real inklings of what they called the nodes and rails engine which they which at the time it was really just theoretical in their minds they didn't really have a third party they would eventually would but um at the time they didn't really have like a an idea of what that would entail so that they were really grasping at air to at least get the pitch through which eventually it was canceled but so um, i mean we're, we're talking about games that you know didn't ship and concepts and stuff like that. But I mean, like mm-hmm. Disney in this era, they're, they are shipping games. I mean, the, the one that comes to mind for me is, is Maui Mallard. I mean, just for, you know, the video game fans sort of listening, like, like what, what content is coming out of these studios during this time? Well, the console, the, the console units were by far the most productive because they could afford to offload a whole bunch of different third party developers onto that. And one of the other things that happened there was that they, these Hollywood studios sort of uh, started going into what I consider a producer arrangement. Like Disney had it and universal interactive had it where they would sort of be the middlemen between like the developers and oftentimes either uh, publishers or even just like retail distributors 
Um, it software had it valve eventually had it um, where basically like there's just another there's there's more hands in the pie basically but disney like the con everything they were doing with the console games they were knocking things out because they knew the technology like these 3d engines and eventually oh, sorry these um side scroller engines eventually two and a half d and 3d everything was just on a roll with them and if they and if someone screwed up you know, they could just hand it off to the next person and not worry about it too much. So, uh, I mean, they're they're doing these like pretty normal. I don't know, maybe normal is not the right word, but it's like when I think back Disney games of this era, it's yeah, it's like those platformers and and that sort of thing on consoles, and they're doing edutainment and stuff as well. But eventually, there is a pitch for something pretty ambitious. Um, and it involves Disney Imagineering. Uh, how does this concept get started for what eventually becomes Virtual Magic Kingdom? Or would, you know, tried to be Virtual Magic Kingdom? Right. So <laughs> at the t- so the pitch really came from Terry Dobson. He was an Imagineer who came in in about 91. There were a couple of things that happened with Disney villains around that time. In 91, there was a Disney villain shop in Fantasyland. And in 92, there was, of course, Fantasmic um, in the Rivers of America. But these were things. These things were just really tiny little things. Um, there wasn't really a whole lot that the company was really doing at that time, and a lot of that had to do with Roy Disney, uh, Roy E. Disney. At the time, everyone who I talked to said that he was sort of against the idea of crossing over the stories, and that is one thing that he sort of, in my opinion, borrowed from Walt's the idea of segregating stories and segregating themes basically anti-metaverse which of course is now all disney does which yeah once (laughs) that's the thing though like once this happened the door blew wide open but at the time like um terry was sort of trying to get this off the ground at first in imagineering like the ideas were sort of there but he he wasn't really getting a whole lot of uh, traction from it eventually he was given the opportunity to um, pitch these things over at Disney Interactive with um, uh, Kendall Lockhart and uh, a bunch of the people that were up there. And effect and effectively, he had he he borrowed it a lot from uh, the Batman TV show from the '60s because he grew up in England and it was sort of a late import there. And so he grew up with that, and he sort of had the idea of uh, he recalls one episode of of that show where all the villains team up against Batman. And so he had the idea of like, what if you could do that, except all the villains sort of break out from the theme park and just sort of run amok and just basically tear the, tear the park apart. And you as the special guest, special nighttime guest of the park have to have to set things straight have to set things straight by midnight. Otherwise the public will be able to see that it's the unhappiest place on earth effectively. Um, So that pitch eventually did get greenlit up through the ranks to Michael Eisner and Michael Ovitz. And it was, um, it got far enough along that production was officially started then. So, um, you know, yeah, production is started and and you mentioned, in your article, you know, as they're sort of conceptualizing, virtualizing Disneyland that, uh, 
you know, they, they, they tried to get into the Disney's archives and I found it really interesting that Disney's archives are themselves sort of segregated and require their own separate approvals. Um, you know, like parks and feature film and television, I think were, were sort of the three different departments. And I think they only had really access to one at first. Well, the thing is, is that like, you basically just had to have someone in authority who could let you in to have access to that. There were of course rules of, there were of course, you know, practical rules of like, you can't really, you sign in the side out of the archives of like Imagineering and the feature animation, the animation research library was really the stickler because that was controlled by Roy and Roy, of course, you know, they had to separately convince him that this was a good idea and they had to, occasionally come back to him to you know make sure that he was still on board with them you know bringing in original animation from the archives and uh, digitizing them creating new animation out of them uh putting them into the games all that kind of stuff but you know once the doors were open on that you know more pitches started coming in eventually once vmk ended there was everything coming in from other departments like um the house of mouse coming from disney television there was um individual stuff coming in from home video like they would have anthologies on home video and um and that of course also led to kingdom hearts being a thing as well well the other thing i thought was The other thing I thought was fascinating about the archives was you mentioned, or one of the people you interviewed mentioned that um, they couldn't like take anything out of the archive and they couldn't photograph things. So they just kind of had to like run back and forth to look at things and recreate them. And I'm just thinking about this from, I mean, I'm not much of an artist myself, um, but from the perspective of anyone who's trying to use archival materials, I feel like I'm like, that doesn't seem very useful <laughs> like you can't really recreate that if you can't sit there and use it as reference while you're working so i don't know i thought that was a really interesting i wonder if that's changed there now or yeah not necessarily like- and of course like the, the technology was really limiting as well like you know photographing it was literally just like you know normal um snap photo photographs you had to get them developed and all that nowadays like if you were trying to recreate the theme park people have been recreating the theme park you know there are individual projects doing that disney's doing it themselves there's a couple of fan projects doing it and you can do it pretty easily just by going to uh, google maps and you know using the data there to do it but at the time yeah, like, strap one of those to... like google cameras or you know 360 cameras on your head and just walk around it at this point right yeah it was, <laughs> and also like all the youtube channels they'll do mm-hmm. they'll get b-roll of everything at least on the public side of things the private side of things of course you know much harder much more restricted but you know that's neither here nor there <laughs> um just quick anecdote about uh, the archives and what they're like now. Um, I still think it's probably pretty difficult to, uh, to get approval to, to use things or even access things because, uh, I worked on a Disney project and, uh, it involved projects. Did I, what was the other one? Oh, I guess you didn't really work on the, I didn't work on Disney afternoon collection I worked on. Um, and, um, I couldn't get logos for like Darkwing Duck or ducktails you know it's like can i please have the logo and the the response was essentially we'll try uh that's and- insane because it's just like what 
don't you want your game to be good and accurate? I had to like <laughs> scan the logos from printed material and like like that that I bought and cleaned clean it up to like get you know the Ducktales logo into the Disney Afternoon collection. So uh, well, 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 hey, hey, at least they said we'll try. <laughs> one of the things, one of the things, like I have a bonus clip on my on my uh, YouTube channel that um, comes from Tim Decker. He was talking about working eventually with. Um, uh, SquareSoft working on Kingdom Hearts. He was he was sort of one of the liaisons with their um, with their leader, Mr. Miyamoto, and taking a tour of them. Not and that Mr. Just, Miyamoto. Not, not that Mr. Miyamoto. <laughs> Miyamoto. So, yeah, excuse me. Yeah, not that Miyamoto. But but like he he would uh, go down to like the animation archives and um, show everything around him and uh, Mr. Miyamoto's assistant would be like, uh, Mr. Decker, Mr. Miyamoto would like all the uh, all the drawings from the archive. And Decker said, no, <laughs> there's no reason for him to have all that. Just tell me what he needs and I'll get it for him. But we just don't have the people to do it. And I said, well, well, well I said to him like, well, na- nowadays, of course they have like a whole crew digitizing things nowadays, but like, you know, even, even that would be a tall order, but like they, they this whole like, song and dance continue through the TV archives, through Imagineering and all that. And, and then he got called in by, uh, he said, Steve Finney, the senior VP later on at Disney interactive. And they were having a really, he was, they were having a shouting argument about the whole thing. And Steve Finney eventually said, you don't say no to a billionaire Decker. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Effect, and he, effectively. He was like, you don't say no. You say, sure, we'll work on it. <laughs> and then you just don't deliver, I guess. I don't know. As, as an archive ourselves um the idea of someone coming to us and being like i will take everything for the nintendo it's like i don't what (laughs) that is an impossible ask (laughs) i i've had that that over email right you know what i'm talking about where it's just like i'm working on an article about this incredibly major game franchise can you email attach me everything from your archives about this game please give me everything about (laughs) pokemon yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, like, like if you have everything on your end, sure. Like SquareSoft, Carly would have had the people to bring bring over to help with that. But like, you know, just any average person coming in there and saying, like, you know, I I, I want to have everything. <laughs> yeah, a little tall order in it. All right. So let's talk about this game. So help us visualize, you know, th- their vision for this thing. I mean, they, they do get it approved by by Roy Disney and, and they're off to the races. Right. So um, from what you're describing in your article, I'm kind of picturing something mist like they they did bring up mist as a big inspiration. In fact, uh, eventually Tom Schillinger would would work with Cyan on like ribbon and stuff. But at the time, mist was really the sort of the a tier adventure game idea so it was an easy sell for you know saying like we're gonna have mist but in the theme park and we're gonna have like kids mini games basically so the idea of the game would effectively be like you enter the park you go into uh, main street and you can look around and all the different little things it would be more or less like a semi-stylized uh but detailed recreation of main street and then you eventually go into like the hub at the end of main street and you would notice that um uh mickey mouse is there to greet you apparently um mickey mouse would sort of be um 
doing tricks for you since he's welcoming you as the special guest and something would go wrong on his end and he would accidentally release Maleficent at the top of the castle, you know, Mm -hmm. and she would send magic out to all the different uh, lands and they would have their evil release from them, their inherent evil. So like fantasy land, this, the, all the magical stories would have like their happy endings torn out and the villains take over in Adventureland. They would have the pirates of the Caribbean sort of rise up and take over in Frontierland. They would have um, the ghosts from the haunted mansion uh, released and go into this like mining town and suck the life from it. Um, the thing with Tomorrowland, of course, was that they didn't they didn't really have a solid concept for it. One of the things that um, one of the things that Gregor sort of told me was that they kept putting all these different like ideas into it, like well, really taking different passes at it. So, like um, he did a pass. Uh, a couple of the different um, main people gave it a pass. He had a couple of people. Uh, he had a comic book artist, Steve Niles, take a pass at it, and. Um, but they just could not have like a solid grasp of that particular land. But so what, what was making it difficult? Was it just that there weren't a lot of like futuristic Disney properties? That was, that was one thing like toy story. They like toy story had come out, but it wasn't really settled yet. Like Zerg wasn't really a thing. Toy story two hadn't come out yet and they didn't really have a, he mentioned that even Tomorrowland at the parks kind of had an identity crisis because when they did Euro Disneyland, like what they tried to do was sort of bring back an old like steampunk sort of Jules Verne kind of thing, but they didn't really have that at California and they were trying to, and they couldn't really do it. But Tomorrowland was sort of kind of sort of stuck in that fifties and sixties kind of like, and here's a television as he put it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, that was one thing. The other thing is that um, like with Toy Story, like they didn't really have a solid villain at this, like all these different parts, you could sort of point to like sort of individual villains, perhaps like you could create like a pirate from Pirates of the Caribbean. You could create like a lead haunted mansion ghost or something like that, but you can really do that with Tomorrowland. And um, of, of course, Tomorrowland wasn't the only main issue. Of course, well, we can get to Frontierland in a bit. <laughs> So, okay, so the the player then is walking around, um, you know, mist style uh, through the park and then um, going to lands and uh, playing mini games to sort of solve them, what, like shooting ghosts, stuff like that. Effectively, like in Fantasylands, a lot of the mini games that eventually got into uh, Disney's Villains Revenge were sort of in place like uh, Alice in Wonderland. There would be like the topiary maze. Um, Snow White, they had, you know, creating a potion to create a prince, little things like that. Um, I think in, in Adventureland, they had the Jungle Cruise and you would sort of like traverse the Jungle Cruise. In Frontierland, I know that they had a minecart. So like in the Big Thunder Mountain, they would have um, like a whole minecart section where you had to like ride and dodge like, you know, dead ends and forks in the track and all that. But um, the thing is that um, 
like they 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 could come up with those ideas but one of the first things that came up was the fact that even with the engine that they eventually had like a lot of that kind of gameplay had to be built from scratch or with plug-in engines essentially so um frontier land eventually became fully playable but a lot of the other lands just didn't really have a chance to be made in the schedule that they wanted to do so what starts going wrong why i mean uh, you mentioned in the article obviously that like this is very expensive um artists are working on uh like silicon graphics workstations that are three hundred thousand dollars at the time so there's i mean two, there's obviously two a lot each. of two each. Two, yeah there's obviously <laughs> a lot of money being poured into this but other than just like it's expensive what starts going wrong here the first red flag was pecos bill they had they tr- in Frontierland, they had the idea of Pecos Bill being sort of like the person to greet you in Frontierland. He eventually, the cut, the cinematic at the start was basically that he was trying to wrangle up the ghosts and, and uh, Gregor actually in his interview, it's not in the article, but he, um, not at this stage, Gregor, Gregor told me that what he wanted to do with, um, Pecos Bill was to sort of redesign him. The The goofy design that he had in Melody Time was sort of um, not really suitable for that kind of game. So what he wanted to do was do something based on uh, Ash from Army of Darkness. And so they basically made um, they made, basically made Pecos Bill into a, into a version of Ash who was basically um, a little too a, a little too arrogant, a little too like confident, and he eventually gets lifted up by two by wrangling too many ghosts and thrown into big thunder mountain and the companion for Frontierland was his gun who was actually a talking gun based on may west they said and <laughs> <laughs> it basically like like a smooth like a smooth talking kind of sun bell kind of oh my that kind of thing <laughs> but one of the things that happened was they had two they had two meetings with um michael eisner um sort of showing Frontierland in its development stages there was one where they started doing animatics and the one where they were actually further along like they had actually basically built the whole thing animated everything the first time around he didn't really say anything but in the opening cinematic even at that stage they had like one provocative moment of like one of the ghosts it'd be like a ghost cowboy holding a pointing a gun at the player and that was like (laughs) every everyone who talked to me about it was just like uh we should probably shouldn't have really done that and eventually in the second meeting eisner was like um looking around everyone he's like you shouldn't call this frontier land you should call it testosterone land (laughs) <laughs> it hit uh, as as i was told just like an executive to ignore the rough draft version and, <laughs> and approve months of work to solidify what's in the rough draft and then catch the thing that he doesn't like effectively but at the same time the second meeting was af- was i believe after michael ovitz left and he was just not really the same and the company at the same time like you know, once once Ovitz left, there was a lot of restructuring that happened at the same time as well. So they were instituting these um, extra financial standards and practices that they were doing. And um, so Interactive eventually 
sort of got reorganized as well. And a lot of the people at t on top sort of got ejected and new people were brought in. So a lot of those people that came in didn't necessarily know about gaming in particular. One of them was from the publishing and one I believe was from music effectively like the, like they, they they were part of the company but they just weren't like all that familiar with the idea of interactive entertainment oh you got an sense. anecdote in here that makes my skin crawl <laughs> about how the mouse works and stuff well that's the thing like one of the things that i was trying to do with this is sort of poke holes in the idea of uh, of a company as being just like a monolithic thing that just never really changes because everything like um, both with Disney and universal, there would be these people like Kendall Lockhart and Disney and like um, skip Hall and uh, universals, these people who sort of push away, like all the pressures from the top of the studio and just sort of insulate the divisions in it insulate the divisions but they never really last long there's always there's always new people new things coming in new standards those things you can you can never really rely on those things staying the same especially in a fortune 500 company or something so uh i mean is does the game just die at this point with with this uh with this sort of uh shake-up so a third meeting came in and this was with Disney interactive leadership, the new leadership. And effectively they were saying, well, this isn't really working. The Frontierland, Frontierland sort of took over the development over, it was supposed to be third in the game over Fantasyland and um, so like after Fantasyland and Adventureland, but it sort of got pushed to the front because everything was already in production and it was just sort of a rolling train that was going through but like a, a lot of the stuff they would have had to change, like they like that would have been in production in and of itself. Tomorrowland wasn't really shaping up. Uh, Fantasyland, they had stuff in progress, but it wasn't nearly as far along as you would think with what eventually happened. So when the meeting, when that meeting came in, there was sort of an agreement like, okay, VMK as we understand it cannot move forward. But there were people, of course, who uh, were championing the idea of that. Well, we already put in millions of dollars into all the different little assets that we put in, like with uh, Fantasyland. We can at least reuse those and put them into a project that's sort of um, like the, the other thing, of course, is that the new management that came in, like they were sort of give, they were given new mandates to basically um they they basically thought that the game was um, tarnishing the park, in their words. Um, so sort of a revisionist opinion about that kind of thing. But they, they, that was their mandate. So they said, OK, if you want to do this, then you should go ahead and do this. But without any of the. Like like without any of the elements of the parks, basically just if you want like a hub world with like all the different stories that go ahead and do it, but with, but not in fantasy land, just anywhere else, basically. So just take what you've done and he here's like a little bit of time and here's an extra year. Here's an extra little scope bit of money. Way, way down and yeah. do what you can in and this so, scope. And so it was changed to a child's bedroom, the, the hub. And that would be sort of where the magic storybook that they had 
would be in place. They pared it down to four stories to four stories that they thought they could um, reasonably do, which was Dumbo, Snow White, Peter Pan, and Alice in Wonderland. So that became Disney's Villains' Revenge. One of the things that they uh, that I one of the things that I wanted that that I made sure to put in the article was a small like a small little nugget of an anecdote of an anecdote which was that uh, one of the 3d artists uh robert miles he put together this carousel for Fantasyland that was supposed to be like the big uh front centerpiece after the magic storybook and the consolation prize for that was that it became a toy on a shelf in the child's bedroom <laughs> and they said that was their shrine <laughs> so i mean was this this is the first time i'd even heard of villains revenge is there is is it is it notable in any way? Well, the thing is, is that like it did win, it did like win an award. It won the equivalent of the dice award that, mm-hmm. uh, that year basically um, for the computer children's game of the year. But notably, uh, I think it was Steve Macbeth. One of the early executives was one of the founding members of the, of the Academy. So uh, take with that what you will, but effectively like, they didn't really promote it all that much. I did not see any like reposted uh, trailers aside from one in the UK. They had like, had it like on their website. The reason that I know about it was because, you know, we had a gateway computer uh, at the time and it was bundled with like a whole bunch of software. And we basically got the works and Disney's villains revenge, I believe was in that if I recall. So that, that was how I knew about it. Is it Jacob? Why did you, go down this journey of of digging this game up uh uh, what is it about virtual magic kingdom that that uh you really wanted people to know about it was sort of a with villain's revenge in particular it was kind of a fluke because i was already doing a lot of stuff with crash and spyro i thought as far as studios were concerned disney was probably a little more understood like a lot of people had been talking about the Disney afternoon stuff on one end and then like kingdom hearts on the other end. But like what, what I didn't understand was that there was this whole, like, you know, empty gap in between them that just sort of like was left open. Like the animated storybooks were understood, but a lot of the stuff that they were doing with peace, a lot of what, a lot of what they were doing with PC entertainment just wasn't being told and when I happened to see that Villain's Revenge was actually the end piece of something that was supposed to be much bigger, like for for anyone else, just like the idea of a much bigger game being canceled and then repurposed, that would have been fine in an, that would have been fine in and of itself. But for this journey that I've been doing with, you know, explaining the do with explaining Hollywood's side of the picture, like the idea of one ambitious game, like a third of the company, well, a third of Disney interactive was working on this at one point for like what, three years or something, right? Effectively. Yeah. But, um, you know, you don't want to miss out a whole chunk of that, especially when the people who had, you know, agreed to talk to me, a lot of, a lot of people didn't, like I, I, I talked to a couple of people that were hesitant and who hadn't really gotten back to me. And that was, of course, like some of them work at Disney, but a lot of people didn't really have 
they just didn't really um I don't think they felt ready to sort of open themselves up about the heartache of having that game canceled, even though aside from that, they all say that it was basically the best experience that they've ever had. So being able to have that story to be able to let, to be able to have those people just, you know, let out their experiences, let out to the people, the stories and all that, like, the game itself is one thing. If a canceled game, you know, can be a fun fact. But if you have people who have been spending three, four, five, or more years of their life on different projects that, you know, may get canceled, may get, um, may get eventually put out, you know, you want to at least give them that chance. Yeah, and I, and I mean, we should mention too, like, Virtual Magic Kingdom, that name, does eventually get used. And, and, you know, it's sort of a similar concept in that it is a virtual recreation of uh, Disney's Magic Kingdom. But it's um, it's more like promotional. I mean, it's technically an MMO, right? But it's more just kind of like a marketing gimmick rather than this game with... I, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but it feels like they just kind of used the skin of this thing, and we're like, yeah, we've got we've got the the nice stuff on top here, and um, taking out all of the uh, story to it and the um, the Disney ishness of it. I I'm struggling for the exact right <laughs> words here, but I feel like they were trying to what they were mm-hmm. trying to make was like a Disney experience, and what ended up being called uh, Disney Virtual Magic Kingdom is just kind of like here's the Disney parks and you can walk around them. Yeah. And, and I, I haven't played it myself, but it was, um, was, was it essentially Habbo hotel, which, uh, they, they sort of were partnering with the developers of which, which was, you know, essentially just, a, a virtual chat room with, with some very, very minor mini games in it. Effectively. Yeah. No, well, effectively. Yeah. VMK, the MMO was a product of hindsight. So Roger Holtzberg and Terry Dobson, the people who were sort of championing championing VMK, like the original, what eventually became Villain's Revenge, they got back and sort of repitched everything. But they knew at the same time that they had to, you know, have something established. Um, they they had a, they had a little bit of success once they uh, moved over to Imagineering and eventually parks and resorts online. They had a couple of different little promotional things. And one of the things that they did was sort of shift their focus into proving that everything that they did had a sort of promotional value to it. They had a couple of things that were focused on like, uh, promoting the tower of terror at Disney California adventure. They had, uh, online, they, they had an online integration with, uh, Buzz Lightyear, game at um at disney disney world i think so a lot of the stuff that they pitched and they pitched to eisner again for that um what they what they did was sort of like they took that same story and then applied like a monetary value to it so they put put it rather than into the interactive basket they put it into a subset of the parks basket so the the parks the parks business at Disney is much more massive than even the movie business. Like it it only now has the movie only now has the movie business really sort of caught up in any meaningful way. 
And so that's because like, of the Marvel stuff, I would I would assume. Or? Yeah, effectively. But of course, all that gets fed into the parks anyway. So it it all sort of cycles back. So the parks were the parks are a big deal in the business. So applying that to the park in a more responsible way was sort of the easy way of getting that into people's minds. Of course, um, at the time, I didn't even know about VMK. Like the the MMO experience is like uh people people my age people who are in like their um early mid 20s does anyone remember millsbury which was something similar like that i don't it, remember millsbury it I, was it was I, there were I a did couple play of, have a hotel for, well yeah. actually i played play the, the coke one but there were a couple of um, there were a ton of like um very simple mmos like browser mmos around that time from oh, yeah. different places millsbury was general mills's version of that nice <laughs> yeah and they they had a lot of they had a lot of mini games based on like that breakfast cereal mascots of a lot of that, but like you know Cartoon Network had Fusion Fall. There was um, right. different there were diff- different little third party things like AQ Worlds and stuff like that. But basically, like you know VMK was coming into this sort of you know out the door promoting Disneyland's fiftieth anniversary, which was fine but they sort of ran into the issue that disney already had a couple of mmos they had club penguin and they had toontown so vmk being this massive success was both good news for the parks but also like sort of bad news for those other mmos because they were sort of in roger's words cannibalizing their audiences and Toontown, I remember being promoted all over the place. Club Penguin a little bit later on, but like he 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 explains that there was a bit of corporate infighting just to make sure that they weren't like you know t- taking it over and or overstaying their welcome. Which eventually VMK lasted about three years as well, two thousand five to two thousand eight, and they were they were sort of content with it lasting about that long. It was only meant to last a year. But eventually, like, just the popularity of it, and especially since at the same time, uh, Hyperion Publishing put out uh, Kingdom Keepers, which included a lot of references to VMK into it. A lot of the characters in that book series, which was actually in and of itself sort of a twist on the original idea of, um, you know, visitors to the park or or some such um, at night where villains take over it's essentially a similar concept but with a lot of um lore and tweaks into it but that was that was a big thing as well there was an audience for that and that sort of um that sort of cut into the novelty that they had that vmk originally had one of the sad things to think about with vmk from hindsight is the fact that like at the time the original Villains Night Out VMK idea was like new enough that, you know, people could say, I've never seen anything like it before. But ever since then, with like Kingdom Hearts and House of Mouse and all these different little things, they've been sort of chipping away at the sort of novelty of it. And which even which even though there's a value to it and people have been really enjoying that kind of thing, Disney Infinity has been really popular um, Epic Mickey has its following. Um, like they're like the, the company sort of learned a lot from the, from the pitch 
and sort of yeah. took it took took into it. A lot of the people who um, eventually worked on so a lot of the people who originally worked on VMK the 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 FMV game eventually worked on a lot of these little things. Um, it, uh, one of the artists, Adolf Luzinski, did a worked on the composite um, logo for Disney that came out more recently. And um, Tom Schillinger worked on the the brand new Warner Brothers production logo. What he did that using Google Earth, he put the data in and basically recreated everything. And there 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 were all these different little projects that you know nowadays they sort of got their um, inspirations, their sort of early taste of that idea from VMK, and like even though people might not really care, care about whether or not the project itself would have ever lived up to the hype, you know, I think we're all better for having had that experience or of them having had that experience. Yeah. I mean, it certainly seems like it inspired all kinds of other projects that, that took from it. Um, I do have to ask one last question just because you sort of alluded to it, but, um, is there like some bitterness at Disney with these people that you spoke to about Kingdom Hearts? Like, did they, were they like, hey, that's like kind of what we were, this feels really similar and it's got a way bigger budget and more access and support. Is there any bitterness there? Uh, Tim Decker did have a little bit of that, but he eventually, but he was still working at Disney Interactive for at least a few more years. So he was sort of like, he sort of had to live with it longer than everyone else. But um, I, I, I think of, I can't really speak for them, but like, you, you know, you can, those, those people can certainly look back at it and sort of take ideas that they've had from that and sort of apply it to everything that they've been doing more recently, you know, whether they're in the toy industry or they're still in feature animation or they're doing freelance work, all these little stuff, all these little things that they've learned that they've had to experience that they've had ideas for, you know. There, there's always an application for that kind of thing. Well, Jacob, uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us on the Video Game History Hour. Uh, we'll have links to uh, the article as well as the pop culture website in the show notes. But for those listening, Jacob, where can people keep up with you on the internet? Well, Pop History can be found at pophistory.club or on Twitter at js underscore pophistory. My personal stuff is js underscore jrod on Twitter. And I also have a YouTube channel where some of my pop history stuff is being put into video form. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jacob. This is great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. 